From time to time he would go off, sometimes walking, sometimes riding, and it was generally supposed that it was on business. And sometimes it was, and sometimes it was not. At any rate, not to get orders for work or to buy pig iron and charcoal and other supplies, though he attended to such things with care and knew how to turn an honest penny into tuppence, as the saying went. But he had business of his own kind in fairy, and he was welcome there, for the star shone bright on his brow, and he was as safe as a mortal can be in that perilous country. The lesser evils avoided the star, and from the greater evils he was guarded. For that he was grateful, for he soon became wise and understood that the marvels of fairy cannot be approached without danger, and that many of the evils cannot be challenged without weapons of power too great for any mortal to wield. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where a handful of Inklings enthusiasts read and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others. I'm Chris Pipkin, Assistant Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Georgia. Joining me today is my former student and current MA graduate of the University of Georgia, Cora Burton. How are you doing, Cora? Hey, good. I know it's been instantaneous fairy time since last we all spoke, but I hope everybody else is doing well. Yeah, yeah. Cora wrote her master's thesis on lexical and thematic peculiar mood development of fairy language in the Germanic cauldron of story. I was wondering, Cora, can you give me like a couple sentence summary of like what your thesis is about? I took several chapters at different stages in the development of English and just looked at a few aspects of the fairies. So, for instance, in my old English chapter, I looked at trees and runes. You know, in my chapter on Old High German, I talked about charms and how they were used as sort of liturgical means of warding off the fairy so it doesn't come in your house <laughs> mm. or, you know, that it leaves your horse alone. So I looked at different aspects of that and then wrapped it all up together by just doing an overview of different Proto-Indo-European roots that really seemed to stick very well to the idea of the fairy. Very cool, very cool. And the reason I invited Cora on for this podcast is because Tolkien himself, of course, is a philologist, which is kind of like what linguists used to be, although there are some distinctions. I believe linguistics focuses on spoken language and philology more on written, or is that completely wrong? Yeah, I mean, now linguistics is very much in the present. Sociolinguistics is really huge, although there are still very large sections of historicists and linguistics departments, it's now very much focused on how do human brains do language and how can we improve the way computers do it? I mean, one of the coolest things that I learned just passively, just how many things a child's brain has to turn on and off to learn a single language. That's really cool. And that's, to some extent, to the point for the story that we're, that we're considering today, Smith of Wooden Major, because the way that this face star that Smith has ingested first manifests itself is he hears the sound of birds and suddenly he begins to sing, but he begins to sing in words that he doesn't know what they mean. It's this connection for Tolkien, certainly, between the magic of the word and, and this sort of mystical way in which humans do language that's, that's connected for him to like kind of the mystery that lies at the essence of what humans are, and fairy is there too. Mm -hmm. 
Smith of Wooden Mage. It was, it was published in 1967. Uh, Tolkien actually started working on it in 1964 as part of an introduction to an edition of George MacDonald's The Golden Key. He started out by kind of writing a parable about a cake to illustrate a point he was making, and then he realized, oh wait, this is actually a story. And so he started writing this story in earnest, ends up publishing it by 1967. In fact, it is his last story. It's an evocative fairy tale. It's also kind of a melancholy meditation on age and an artist's loss of his faculties and ultimate resignation. So in some ways, it's a beautiful, enchanting book. And in other ways, it's a poignant book. It's it's one of the best, I think, visions of fairy that, that we get from Tolkien, even though it's so sort of deceptively simple. And what we read at the top was one of Smith's kind of the early journeys that Smith begins making into fairy because as a result of getting this face star, he is able to travel into fairy and he's able to be shielded from the harms of fairy. Odd, like almost visions that you get. They're very episodic. It's not clear exactly how they advance any kind of plot. These little visions of fairy that we get and, and Pauline Baines is kind enough to illustrate some of them. First, he walked for the most part quietly among the lesser folk and the gentler creatures in the woods and meads of fair valleys and by the bright waters in which at night strange stars shone and at dawn the gleaming peaks of far mountains were mirrored. Some of his briefer visits he spent looking only at one tree or one flower, but later in longer journeys he had seen things of both beauty and terror that he could not clearly remember nor report to his friends, though he knew that they dwelt deep in his heart. But some things he did not forget, and they remained in his mind as wonders and mysteries that he often recalled. Something that strikes me in, you know, coming from the same author that has developed a complete world with developed languages and pre-languages and proto-languages and histories and lays and sagas like Middle-earth has, here we do get some place names, but that's like it. Everything else, it's not so much that it's vague. The names aren't important to the meaning. For instance, the most striking image we see this contingent of warriors returning home from the sea of windless storm and they're tall and terrible they're elven mariners and it immediately makes me think like oh man this feels like it's in the world of Beowulf but at the same time it's in the world of the fairy queen and it's kind of all of fairy at once which I think Tolkien does really really well here the peculiar mood is all here whatever that means right the way that he puts these dangers and these beauties together, I think really helps solidify what it is. Yeah. We, we talked last time about kind of the glowering of Alf, the way that that glowering kind of startles you, right? And again, the kind of fierceness, you could call it the first like very distinct vision. It's not a vision, of course, he's, he's wandering through fairy. It strikes us as kind of a vision. He stood beside the sea of windless storm where the blue waves like snow-clad hills roll silently out of unlight to the long strand, bearing the white ships that return from battles on the dark marches of which men know nothing. So the dark marches of which men know nothing, of course, remind you of where Grendel comes from, right? The Merkstapa. But the elven mariners are just as scary. They were tall and terrible. Their swords shone and their spears glinted and a piercing light was in their eyes. So evocative. Even the good things can be terrifying here. It's often the case in Tolkien's other work but Tolkien knew Middle-earth so well. And here it's a world that he doesn't really know about. It's just all evocation, right, and suggestion. Despite the fact that it began as a critique of MacDonald in some ways, it's the most MacDonaldian thing I think he's ever written because they're just these images, these kind of episodic images that don't necessarily, aren't, aren't really a plot. They're just dreamlike, but they're fierce and, and poignant and interesting. Yeah, and yet you really 
feel the sorrow when he can't go back. Yeah. So it's not a place that's truly very scary and he'd never want to return to because he has these episodes where, yes, it was a very frightening experience, but I want to go back and I want to find my way to the mountain. And there's a comfort to it, I think, that you can find when you mirror it with the everyday and how some days are really, really bad, but you just go back and, and you try a different route or you try to find the same thing again and come across something else. At one point, he comes across the king's tree and it's so beautiful and so tall and it bore at once leaves and flowers and fruit and he never found it again but the pursuit led to so many other things yeah absolutely this is the thing that noakes gets wrong about fairy right because fairy for him is just all sweet and sugar icing it's all delight but there needs to be a balance between that and the terrors a balance between you know romantics would call the beautiful and the sublime there there would be no heft to a world like this if it didn't have frightening things in it too. If you go to the sea and delight in the sea in part because it's so big and so frightening. Same with the mountains. In creating this sea and these mountains, he's emphasizing the element of terror. It's not like grotesque terror like with horror stories or or things like that. It is frightening and holy. And I think that's reflected too in our king and queen characters that they do this again off Sam Gamgee, you know, they rise up very, very tall and dark and terrible, but at the same time, they shine the brightest light. Yeah, they can be both like almost childlike and also grim or, or stately and regal. So he sees the king's tree and he looks for a long time after that for the king's tree again, never quite finds it. One adventure that he has, it's the one pictured on the front of a lot of editions of Smith of Wooden Major. He goes to the outer mountains, comes to a deep dale among them, and at its bottom lay a lake, calm and unruffled, though a breeze stirred the woods that surrounded it. In that dale the light was like a red sunset, but the light came up from the lake. From a low cliff that overhung it, he looked down, and it seemed that he could see to an immeasurable depth. And there he beheld strange shapes of flame, bending and branching and wavering like great weeds in a sea dingle and fiery creatures went to and fro among them. Filled with wonder, he went down to the water's edge and tried it with his foot, but it was not water. It was harder than stone and sleeker than glass. He stepped on it, and he fell heavily, and a ringing boom ran across the lake and echoed in its shores. At once the breeze rose to a wild wind, capital W wind, roaring like a great beast, and it swept him up and flung him on the shore, and it drove him up the slopes, whirling and falling like a dead leaf. He put his arms about the stem of a young birch and clung to it, and the wind wrestled fiercely with them, trying to tear him away, but the birch was bent down to the ground by the blast and enclosed him in its branches. When at last the wind passed on, he rose and saw that the birch was naked. It was stripped of every leaf, and it wept, and tears fell from its branches like rain. He set his hand upon its white bark, saying, Blessed be the birch! What can I do to make amends or give thanks? He felt the answer of the tree pass up from his hand. Nothing, it said. Go away. The wind is hunting you. You do not belong here. Go away and never return. What do you make of this? Should we be making things of this? Or is that trespassing? It's a very striking image. And I almost imagine, even though it doesn't say this at all, but, you know, talking about the light in the dale as like a red sunset, I almost imagine a nice light until he falls onto the lake and then it turns red because it's angry. You know, from a creative perspective, I almost imagine that this was almost remnants of a story that just kind of belonged here and didn't need any further explanation almost. So I'm personally content to think of it really as just, wow, that would be scary and really cool and I'm just going to put that in there. But of course, you know, there's always something underlying these things it feels like especially for someone like Tolkien yeah I have no idea I'm sure if he was planning a story like that he wrote 
down notes somewhere, but I have not mined all of Tolkien's notes. So if any listeners are very big Tolkien experts and read all the unpublished stuff that is now published, let us know if Tolkien has any stories like this. The closest thing I could find is the in the Golden Key itself, where two children are looking for a golden key at the end of a rainbow, and they actually come to the rainbow, and the rainbow is like almost solid. There is some walking on water as though it's hard water involved and they also look into the rainbow and the sun sets but the rainbow continues to glow for the rainbow of fairyland according to mcdonald is not dependent upon the sun as ours is the trees welcomed him the bushes made way for him the rainbow grew larger and brighter and at length he found himself within two trees of it it was a grand sight burning away there in silence with its gorgeous its lovely its delicate colors each distinct all combining he could now see a great deal more of it. It rose high into the blue heavens, but bent so little that he could not tell how high the crown of the arch must reach. It was still only a small portion of a huge bow. He stood gazing at it till he forgot himself with delight, even forgot the key which he had come to seek. And as he stood, it grew more wonderful still. For in each of the colors, which was as large as the column of a church, he could faintly see beautiful forms slowly ascending, as if by the steps of a winding stair. The forms appeared irregularly, now one, now many, now several, now none, men and women and children, all different, all beautiful. So when I was rereading this, I read about like the fiery figures inside of the lake, it reminded me of odd little forms going up in the rainbow, you know, and of course, McDonald really likes trees and he really likes birches. To me, this is just so reminiscent of McDonald. Um, maybe Tolkien is like singling out the things in McDonald that he really does like and resonate with and trying to like purify them from the Victorian sentimentality and preachiness. That is also in McDonald's stories a lot of times. I don't know. Yeah, kind of like flipping it over. Yeah, it's it's such an evocative and it feels so like with the kind of dream logic, right? It, it feels true, this being blown by a wind and hunted by a wind and the birch saving you. Like when you're in a dream and things like that happen, there's a certain kind of inevitability about it where, where you're like, oh yes, of course this is happening. And then you wake up later on, you're like, what the heck? No, there's nothing like reasonable about that. I just felt like it was reasonable, right? But yeah, this like lovely sort of fairy and frightening dream logic that's like at any moment sort of threatening to become a nightmare yeah and that taps into a little bit too i think of how purely individual experiences and in fairy can be you know yeah. the, the dream logic makes sense when you're there but when you go back and try to tell somebody else about it it makes no sense at all yeah even when you try to tell yourself about it after the fact you, you are not of a mind of the person you were when you were unconscious either i i would love to understand sometime a little bit more the connection between dreams and literature and fairy and if we could throw language in there that'd be great too they're they're so closely connected the best that i can think is literature is the way that we make dreams less individual so we are we are each having our own sort of private experience right my images that are not pauline baines's that i see when i read this are different from yours but there's enough about it that participates in the logic of the primary world that we can kind of like all share a literary experience in a way that we can't all share a dream experience but you're right at the same time fairy is incredibly isolating and it does mark literally mark smith out as as different from from everyone else starting to get the idea that he's not really supposed to be there or if he is he's not supposed to be everywhere he wants to be the birch at any rate is like you you should not be here you need to you need to get out go away never return do you think the birch is talking about fairy in general or do you think the birch is talking about that particular valley with all the red and the and the wind and stuff you know that question didn't even occur to me i always assumed that there was some kind of situation capital s situation going on there that you know you human you have nothing to do with you need to get out of here and it always struck me when he visits the fairy ring 
and meets the queen for the first time, although he doesn't know that it's the queen. Her kind of jab that like, oh, I see, um, you know, Starbrow. You've been wandering around where you're not supposed to. haha. Even though it is in some ways serious, like you've been assuming that you can just go wherever you want. It doesn't feel like a condemnation. It feels more like you've come to realize some truth that you didn't know before. Although nobody's here to tell you necessarily, you know, the only ticket or, or companion he's really had up till now in his wanderings has been the star itself. Although that's not strictly true because at the very beginning, when you have that moment at the Sea of Windless Storm, that paragraph starts out with, when he first began to walk far without a guide. He thought he would discover the further bounds of the land. I wouldn't bring it up if I wasn't intensely interested in like knowing like who was his guide. Was it the old master chef? Was it oh, someone so else? Oh, that's so weird. Yeah. Was it Virgil? Because that's exactly what you think of. Yeah. I'm just really curious about that. And I'm, I'm not sure. I, I haven't made it all the way through all of Verlin Flieger's notes. So it could be that they'll mention who the guide might have been. Uh, now I want to read Smith of Wooten Major fanfic where we read about Smith walking around with the lesser folk and the gentler creatures and the, the smaller adventures that he had initially. It sounds very peaceful. Yeah, it won't be the first time we've assigned fanfic by all means readers or listeners. You're also readers though, so fair enough. He meets the fairy queen. He doesn't know that it's the fairy queen. He thinks it's one of a few maidens who are dancing in kind of a fairy ring, which is what fairies really, really like to do because they, they do this a lot. She says, have you no fear of what the queen might say if she knew of this? Unless you have her lead. He was abashed for he became aware of his own thought and knew that she read it, that the star in his forehead was a passport to go wherever he wished. And now he knew that it was not. But she smiled as he spoke again. Come, now that you're here, you shall dance. So he dances with what seems like a fairy maiden. She picks a flower from right next to her feet and he brings it home with him. Uh, this is where you start to get what it might cost other people in his life for him to be making these excursions to fairy. Not that it's wrong for him to be doing it, but that there is a cost. When he came to his own house, his daughter ran out and greeted him with delight. He had returned sooner than was expected, but none too soon for those that awaited him. Daddy, she cried, where have you been? Your star is shining bright. When he crossed the threshold, the star dimmed again. But Nell took him by the hand and led him to the hearth. And Nell remembers his wife. And there she turned and looked at him. Dear man, she said, where have you been? And what have you seen? There is a flower in your hair. She lifted it gently from his head, and it lay on her hand. It seemed like a thing seen from a great distance. Yet there it was, and light came from it that cast shadows on the walls of the room, now growing dark in the evening. The shadow of the man before her loomed up, and its great head was bowed over her. You look like a giant, Dad, said his son, who had not spoken before. The flower did not wither nor grow dim, and they kept it as a secret and a treasure. The smith made a little casket with a key for it, and there it lay and was handed down for many generations in his kin. And those who inherited the key would at times open the casket and look long at the living flower, till the casket closed again. The time of its shutting was not theirs to choose. Such an interesting vignette, such a poignant scene, right, where he comes where he comes home to the people really who he belongs to, that love him best. He's strange to them. They're familiar, and, and the familiarity is kind of lovely. Like, it's a homely house, and it's with people that know him, and yet they don't know him. And they can't, because his experiences are so unique. Yeah, and he is a kind of fairy unto them. You know, they yeah. see he has this huge shadow. He's bringing fairy with him so that they can experience it in some secondary way. But there is that stratification there, too, between the illustration and the way that Nell talks to him. It very much feels like she's still that little girl that's disappointed that she didn't get anything in her slice of cake. Hmm. Um, at least, you know, for me, I... I immediately, as a married woman, like put myself in her shoes and feel for her in that way. I think this was the experience of a lot of the Inklings' wives as well. Lewis's wife was a, an exception. They completely were simpatico and could work on stuff together and, and all of this, even though they did not last together long. And that's partly, honestly, I think because he married her so late in life. They both kind of had literary careers by the time they got married. It seems to me anyway from reading their biographies that it was a struggle for Tolkien's wife to be taking care of day-to-day -day things and 
all of those kids. Being a node in the margins is a bit tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And having Tolkien be as dedicated as he was to his craft, we won't get started on William's wife. That's a conversation for another time. There's a kind of tenderness here, though, and there's a the kind of understated nature of of this. Uh, she's not quietly sulking in the corner, but she's asking him, you know, where have you been? There's a flower in your hair. He encounters the fairy queen for what he thinks is the first time and actually is not. I mean, he realizes, oh shoot, this girl that I danced with is the fairy queen. And he's so abashed that he does not kneel until she tells him of courtesy, please kneel. And she has a message. For, Do not be grieved for me, Starbrow she said, nor too much ashamed of your own folk. He's remembering the tiny little, cute little fairy queen on the top of that cape that first gave him the star. Better little doll, maybe, than no memory of fairy at all. For some, the only glimpse. For some, the awaking. Ever since that day, you have desired in your heart to see me, and I have granted your wish. But I can give you no more. Now, at farewell, I will make you my messenger. If you meet the king, say to him, the time has come, let him choose. But Lady of Fairy, he stammered, where then is the king? For he had asked this question many times of the people of Fairy, and they had all said the same, he has not told us. And the queen answered, if he has not told you, Starbrow, then I may not. But he makes many journeys and may be met in unlikely places. Now kneel of your courtesy. Then he knelt and she stooped and laid her hand on his head. And a great stillness came upon him, and he seemed to be both in the world and in fairy, and also outside them and surveying them, so that he was at once in bereavement, and in ownership, and in peace. When, after a while, the stillness passed, he raised his head and stood up. The dawn was in the sky, and the stars were pale, and the queen was gone. Far off he heard the echo of a trumpet in the mountains. The high field where he stood was silent and empty, and he knew that his way now led back to bereavement. In proportion to the rest of the tale, this sort of ending takes up a good chunk of the story when he knows that he must pass the star on to someone else as he finds it from Alf. As he's on his way back from one more trip to Fairy, he runs into Alf the Prentice. He saw a man beside him. He was tall and he walked lightly and quickly. He was dressed all in dark green and wore a hood that partly overshadowed his face. The smith was puzzled, for only the people of Fairy called him Starbrow, and he had called Smith Starbrow. But he could not remember ever having seen this man there before, and yet he felt uneasily that he should know him. What way are you going, then? he said. I'm going back to your village now, the man answered, and I hope you are also returning. I am indeed, said the smith. Let us walk together. But now something has come back to my mind. Before I began my homeward journey, a great lady gave me a message. But we shall soon be passing from Fairy and I do not think that I shall ever return. Will you? Yes, I shall. You may give the message to me. But the message was to the king. Do you know where to find him? I do. What was the message? The lady only asked me to say to him, the time has come, let him choose. I understand. Trouble yourself no further. And so they continue to walk on. And Smith recognizes, oh, this guy is Alf the Prentice. And they have this conversation that probably will sound familiar to most Tolkien fans. He says, I should like to speak to you, Smith Smithson, before we go back to your country. The Smith wondered at that, for he himself had often wished to talk to Alf, but had never been able to do so. Alf had always greeted him kindly and had looked at him with friendly eyes, but it seemed to avoid talking to him alone. He was looking now at the smith with friendly eyes, but he lifted his hand and with his forefinger touched the star on his brow. The gleam left his eyes, and then the smith knew that it had come from the star, and that it must have been shining brightly, but now was dimmed. He was surprised and drew away angrily. Do you not think, Master Smith, said Alf, that it is time for you to give this thing up? What is that to you, Master Cook, he answered, and why should I do so? Isn't it mine? It came to me. And may a man not keep things that come to him so, at the least as remembrance? Some things, those that are free gifts and given for remembrance, but others are not so given. They cannot belong to a man forever, nor be treasured as heirlooms. They are lent. You have not thought, perhaps, that someone else may need this thing. But it is so. Time is pressing. Then the smith was troubled, 
for he was a generous man, and he remembered with gratitude all that the star had brought to him. Then what should I do? he asked. Should I give it to one of the great and fairy? Should I give it to the king? And as he said this, a hope sprang in his heart that on such an errand he might once more enter fairy. You could give it to me, said Alf, but you might find that too hard. Will you come with me to my storeroom and put it back in the box where your grandfather laid it? I did not know that, said the smith. No one knew but me. I was the only one with him. Then I suppose that you know how he came by the star and why he put it in the box. He brought it from fairy. That you know without asking, Alf answered. He left it behind in the hope that it might come to you, his only grandchild. So he told me, for he thought that I could arrange that. He was your mother's father. I do not know whether she told you much about him, if indeed she knew much to tell. Ryder was his name, and he was a great traveler. He had seen many things and could do many things before he settled down and became master cook. But he went away when you were only two years old, and they could find no one better to follow him than Noakes, poor man. Still, as we expected, I became master in time. This year I shall make another great cake, the only cook, as far as is remembered, ever to make a second one. I wish to put the star in it. And so Smith agrees to give up the star, and he has a hand in choosing who the next person is going to be to receive this star and be able to travel in ferry. It's really interesting for so many different reasons. But Cora, what stands out to you about this ending of Smith's Adventures in Fairy? The choice to make a choice in terms of because you gave up the star freely, I will let you name who gets to have it next. Alf holds himself to that. He said, even if you had picked someone other than Tim, I would have been made to agree with you. But I'm glad that we chose the same kid because, you know, our, our hearts are in the same place. I think it's interesting because it was freely given and not taken away that he could continue to have agency in, in where the star went next. And that brought him solace knowing that it was going to another child that would be affected in the same way or even perhaps in a more grand way than himself. Yeah, it's interesting because if this is about, if this is kind of like a parable about like the failing of your creative faculties or something like that, you can't really say that you're giving them up in order to, in order to pass them on to somebody else, right? It's, it's, it, that's where the sort of analogy or parable sort of breaks down or doesn't apply, unfortunately. It would be great if you could. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. And of course, like, I don't think anybody can read this without thinking of Bilbo leaving the ring to Frodo. But the ring is a curse. It's not a blessing. It's a curse that makes you lonely and that cuts you off from other people in your community. And that ultimately means that you will sail into the utter west to fairy. Very different outcomes. <laughs> yeah, the nature of both endings are kind of sad, but in Lord of the Rings, the ring must be destroyed, but it also serves as the passage to fairy for the hobbits, right? That's the thing that causes them to, and not Bilbo at first, right? He, he ends up wandering around because some dwarves show up. But for Frodo, he doesn't want the passport to the wider world, right, to fairy, but he gets it despite that. He's the type of person who, even before he gets the ring, is interested in the wider world, right, and interested in Bilbo's adventures. But it's such an odd parallel between this star and the ring because the ring is evil but it's also something that the hobbits love and that they think it is precious to them and it came to me is what they say again and again right and here you have that same echo here so originally when i read this story i was like oh this is probably one of tolkien's early tales and he's like working up to the lord of the rings but this is written after the lord of the rings has made him a fairly famous author that he's, that he's writing this and he's choosing to echo these parts of his kind of great story in this shorter story where someone is also hesitant to let go of something, but it's something that's good this time. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do with those parallels, but they're really interesting. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to do with that either, other than to look at it as an interesting development for him personally 
of how he sort of takes these different pieces and, and wants to relate them in terms of what he wants his audience to get from them. Because obviously, you know, he can't have wrote It Came to Me without knowing immediately that that's from the same stuff. Yeah, this is like something that is part of Tolkien's, like Tolkien himself is saying and hearing It Came to Me all the time so that he doesn't catch the reference, right? Or else he's commenting in some way on the earlier story that he's famous for through mirroring the same language maybe he's just teasing us but uh but yeah it's uh, it's it's really interesting again the difference between how vague so much of this is this book right versus how spelled out everything is in, in middle earth and still manages to be very evocative and dreamlike yeah really it feels like it prioritizes the feelings yeah. over the details so there are a few sort of final meetings that you get right and final sort of decisions that you get at the end of this story i think one of my favorites one of one of the best is uh, is the smith coming home and seeing his son that day. I really love it a lot because it's a reunion, but it's almost all meeting him for the first time yeah. now that he can be home. Yeah. I mean, that must be so wild. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not really a cat's in the cradle moment, is it? You know, I've been hoping for you since yesterday, Dad, and his son's grown up. Then looking into his father's face, he said anxiously, how tired you look. You have walked far, maybe? Very far indeed, my son, all the way from daybreak to evening. So they go into the house. Smith is, is you know, where's, where's your mother? His son looked hard at him. Why? Mother's over at Minor at, at, at Nan's. It's the little lad's second birthday. They hoped you would be there too. Ah, yes, I ought to have been. I should have been, Ned, but I was delayed. And I have had matters to think of that put all else out of mind for a time. But I did not forget Tomling. He put his hand in his breast and drew out a little wallet of soft leather. I have brought him something, a trinket old Noakes maybe would call it, but comes out of fairy, Ned. Out of the wallet he took a little thing of silver. It was like the smooth stem of a tiny lily from the top of which came three delicate flowers, bending down like shapely bells. And bells they were. For when he shook them gently, each flower rang with the small clear note, the sweet sound the candles flickered and then for a moment shone with a white light. Ned's eyes were wide with wonder. May I look at it, Dad? He said. He took it with careful fingers and peered into the flowers. The work is a marvel, he said. And Dad, there is a scent in the bells, a scent that reminds me of, well, reminds me of something I've forgotten. Smith tells his son that he won't be going on journeys anymore. It's that way, is it, Dad? I wondered what had become of the star. That's hard. He took his father's hand. I'm grieved for you, but there's good in it too for this house. Do you know, Master Smith, there is much you can teach me yet, if you have the time. And I do not mean only the working of iron. So this kind of like fellowship that he has with his son that's so kind of intimate. Even though his son has not been making journeys into fairy, he hears of fairy at second hand from his father. I like to avoid reading the details of an author's life into his works but it's so hard to avoid seeing this as christopher tolkien right the son that that really continued tolkien's work understood it simpatico with it and he's not like you old jerk you never had time for us you know but but instead he's just so kind of understanding yeah it reads of a warmth in the grief that i think to Smith, something in a way has, has died for him. Having been in the last two years to three funerals, there's a similar feeling of not necessarily seeing something bright there, but of really leaning into your relationship with others to help each other get through a period of time where you miss something that much. And I just love reading it. It's, it's so warmly written. Yeah, 
Yeah, so finally at the end, uh, you have this encounter between Alf and old Noakes, who's an old man by now and very, very fat. And he dismisses Alf's claim to be the king of fairy. And he's like, oh, if you're the king of fairy, make me a thin man. He's so disturbed by how frightening and Gandalfish Alf becomes, you know. He stops eating as much because he thinks that the bad dream was brought on by food. Dwindles down to nothing, which makes him live a lot longer. Alf goes off and Noakes is glad. And that's that's really the end of the story. Something that struck me is that, you know how they repainted the hall? To mm-hmm. be more like it was in old times, as Alf knows. But most of them think, oh, it's newfangled. It makes it look gaudy. Everybody saw Alf off and not too many people were that upset about it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, in some ways the enchantment stayed. In the village, there were in fact several families that did miss Alf for some time. A few of his friends, especially Smith and Harper, grieved at his going and they kept the hall gilded and painted in memory of Alf. Most people, however, were content. They had had him for a very long time and were not sorry to have a change. And it makes me wonder, like, if Alf was there to make all of the people of Wooden Major less smug and self-satisfied, did he actually succeed? Or did he just succeed in, like, one or two people here and there? I guess it starts with one or two people. Yeah, I guess so. It's just really interesting. There's so much to talk about in terms of the nature of fairy. Yeah, I just have a I just have a couple of questions I'd love to hear what you think about. Is Tolkien here? Because Tolkien makes it his project and his job to sort of recapture the medieval view of fairy, right? They're not the way Victorians sort of painted them, right? With the pointy little ears and fluttering around like butterflies. He's trying to recapture the view of fairy that you get in these great old stories, right? Whether folk tales or romances or, or lays or whatever else. What's weird about that to me is that in a lot of these old stories, fairies are not, it's not clear that they have good intentions all the time, right? So I just wonder, is Tolkien recovering a medieval view of things? To what extent is he doing that? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely drawing the line between the, you know, Victorian silly fairy and the some sort of recovered original holy kind of fairy. But I think you draw an interesting point in that the fairy in Smith is ultimately goodness. You know, you go there and you are filled up with something good. In terms of the medieval mindset, a fairy or an elf is kind of a descriptor for the same type of otherworld creature where they could be good or bad depending on what you do to it or what it's feeling like that day. And I mean, in some ways, that's that's a good way to explain things that happen to you sometime. There is this whole phenomenon in old English charms of elf shot where either you get sick or your horse gets sick and you're like, oh man, you know, an elf has shot my horse. And you know, that's obviously really not a benevolent thing to do. (laughs) So you never really know what fairy is going to dish out, I think, from the medieval perspective. And at the same time, I feel like in the medieval sense, fairy and reality are on the same plane. I think that's brought out somewhat here because Smith gets there by walking. He walks to fairy. We don't really get the logistics on that. It's walkable. It feels close. He's definitely playing around with the line between a recovery but also perhaps a salvation of the medieval fairy and turning it into something of goodness. Yeah. No, it's really interesting and it's interesting too like how this is about a kind of unseen world that informs our experience of this world which of course has everything to do with Tolkien's Catholicism with his Christianity. It's hard to suss out to what extent is fairy holy and to what extent is it something different. There's that old Thomas the Rhymer poem, right, that that Tolkien knew and quoted in on fairy stories. There's the narrow road and that leads to heaven, even though after it but few inquire. There's the broad road that leads to hell. Then there's this third road and it leads to fairy and that's not really one or the either. It's sort of this middle way. I mean, obviously in disliking McDonald's preachiness, there's a rejection of explicit religion in story and that's all throughout everything Tolkien does. It's interesting like to what extent fairy seems rather than a domain in hell, fairy seems to be like a subdomain of heaven in, in a way. It's 
beautiful it's holy it's impossible to articulate fully in the way that even like his little glossolalia episode there like when he becomes aware of fairy it, it gets to the beauty of speaking in another language that tolkien i suppose would have been at least familiar with from speaking latin in church right it's so interesting yeah yeah i think one place where it doesn't quite map perfectly for me is that there are some like many catastrophes perhaps in the story but we don't get some overwhelmingly prevailing surprise so good that it's like a catastrophe yeah. here it's it's that melancholy feeling yeah. of handing it off to somebody else perhaps that's a way of sort of breaking up that individualization saying that it isn't just for you and that part of the great joy of it is that it will always be passed on in terms of the great unseen world that we'd like to map it onto yeah i don't know it it, it doesn't quite map perfectly but no. i can it makes me continually wonder like where do we get that ingrained rememberedness about fairy smith's son talks about this a little bit when he smells the trinket that smith brought home for tomling you know it smells like something i'm remembering and there's yeah. this almost deep-seated notion that fairy is somewhere we've always been before yeah absolutely there's such a there's such an attempt on a part of the lot of, of a lot of the inklings to take this thing that the romantics were always talking about you know it's not just the inklings they're they're following along with mcdonald and and with Coleridge, but to take this sort of unnameable joy that's at the essence of things that the Romantics were obsessed with and found in nature and to relate their faith to it without making it an allegory for their faith. There are elements of this sort of romanticist Christianish eanity coming out and and sort of just kind of dropping into the story throughout where you know if you're used to hearing lewis talk about god and sansukt this this very like romantics meets anglicanism sort of sort of thing um you know english christian romanticism that you see in lewis it comes out here very strongly in that the fairy people it's not that they're they're scary and arbitrary it's that people are mundane and selfish and they seem scary and arbitrary to mundane selfish people like nooks whereas ordinary fairy tales like the folk tales that you get some of the legends and some of the lays and romances and things like that no they're actually scary and arbitrary and they're you know and maybe Tolkien is saying well the people writing down those tales just didn't see fairy correctly because they had their vision muddied by their own like preoccupations or whatever but yeah it's it's really fascinating I don't know if he's changing fairy to suit his purposes or if he's redeeming fairy and making making it more fairy-like than it would have been. modern fantasy literature and culture is a lot of fun but by tolkien's rubric is this kind of explosion of fantasy literature that you get in the later part of the 20th century is it a road into fairy i could easily envision a modern wooden major where everyone was addicted to world of warcraft and, and game of thrones and in that case how would the face star make you different from that what is true fairy and what is fun fantasy schlock and can you navigate between those things it makes it very difficult too because because you have things like Lord of the Rings Online, you know, yeah, like yeah. you swung from Victorian fairy to Tolkien level fairy. And now we're back over along the other side. And really, I guess where I would start with this question is like asking what is the face star actually doing? And I don't know if it's ever really made explicit. If everyone is addicted to these fanciful F-A-I-R-Y fairy stuff, uh, World of Warcraft, Game of Thrones all the different YA fantasy that has exploded. From Tolkien's perspective, if he were around today, you know, using today's nomenclature, I think he'd call it normie, except it feels to me like a true extension of his idea of subcreation. Hmm. And I don't know that in my mind I can separate that out because it really feels like fairy has just grown. Obsession with that fairy doesn't necessarily mean that it's more derivative, just that it is an outgrowth of the cauldron of story now because more bits have been added. And now it's so hard to get into another world that isn't 
token derivative. Mm. You know, I mean, looking back at books like Aragon, people critiqued that book because the dwarves felt like they were just Tolkien dwarves because he changed it so much and also brought forward ideas from medieval folklore that hadn't necessarily been forgotten, but like they were revivified. Yeah. Um, and so you got these very Germanic types of, of elf kings in the forms of the dwarves and you, you got elves that are re-envisioned as these creatures that can shoot in the dark and that have their own agency and deep magic about them. And you don't have little fairies flitting around. And that really feels like high fantasy perhaps is the true fantasy now with other things maybe being more of that fanciful fairy stuff. What do you think about that? So I feel like Tolkien, partly based on Christopher Tolkien's very negative reaction to the films, part of me wants to cast what Tolkien is doing much more in terms of like he's an extension of the romantics in a lot of ways and they're sort of they're longing for for things right the things that for him at least to me seemed to call up longing was this idea of these languages that he invented and uh, and kind of giving to that longing a language and then a culture and seeing it realized with greater depth and detail if you ever get a chance to, by the way, read Tales Before Tolkien. It's it's a bunch of the tales, including the Golden Key that inspired Tolkien. There are so many stories that are just incredibly evocative, right? And they're not necessarily saying we've got our gnomes here and our this kind of creature here, because that's not really the point for them. They're just really highly evocative and poignant. There's like this longing for the sea in one of them, that people die because they go out to the sea one generation after another, right? It gives me this sense that that longing however it sort of manifests itself or materializes the chief thing probably Tolkien would say you get it best in the old tales but you you can get it in modern tales that aren't necessarily in the fantasy genre right I think a lot of the like sort of modern fantasy industry like any industry is of necessity rather noxian wants to give the kids sugar so that they'll buy more right but I think that just like with the cake that can be a lot of people's first introduction to like the deep truth full experience of of fairy that takes something that maybe was like spoon fed to them like mmorpg or whatever the kids are doing nowadays i don't even know if they're doing world of warcraft much but uh take something that where, where the images are ready made and and you know you have your categorizations of size of the dwarves and elves and things like that but allows that to become a road into actual fairy for for those that want that who are fascinated by it i think i think my other answer would probably be part of what tolkien's describing here is a creative life as well this is not just a consumer of stories but it's someone who makes inevitably there's a lot of tragedy and frustration in the life of a maker it's going to end in tragedy and frustration because that's what you see on this side of life as to what happens on the other side you have to read leaf by niggle then then you get the full picture yeah Yeah. Cora, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, this is so much fun. It's such a delight. I'd love to have you back anytime you want to come back on. Yeah, absolutely. It was loads of fun. I hope to be back soon. Thank you all for tuning in. Bye, everybody. Encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the Geeson fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. <laughs>